from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Helen Fisher will join us to discuss the science of love. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Ah, love, sweet love. It's what makes the world go round. But for all of us interested in these basic attractions, it still remains a mystery why we fall in love at all, with one person over another. Is there a science to attraction? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Helen Fisher. Professor Fisher is a research professor in the Department of Anthropology at Rutgers University. She has written numerous articles and five books on the subject, including The Anatomy of Love and The First Sex. Her latest release, Why Him, Why Her, explores the chemistry of attraction for a general audience. Professor Fisher, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, it's certainly our pleasure. Interesting question. Is there a science to attraction? Oh, absolutely. There is. Uh, there's a science to attraction. There's a science to what happens in the brain when you fall in love. As a matter of fact, this is what Match.com, the Internet dating site, came to me almost five years ago now and asked me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And at the time, I said, well, you know, scientists really don't know. I mean, they do know that you tend to fall in love with somebody from your same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values. Your childhood certainly plays a role, but nobody really knows how, and timing is important, proximity is important, but, you know, you can walk into a room, and the timing is right, and you look at a lot of people, and they're all from your background, and general level of intelligence, and good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them, so... I set out to try and figure out if basic body chemistry pulls you naturally towards some people rather than others, and indeed, I did find some of Mother Nature's patterns. You find that there's sort of a various brain systems in place for a various stages of attraction, lust, romantic attraction, and long-term attraction. Are they all related in some fashion? Yeah. This is, comes from a book called Why We Love, and I, I have maintained for a long time that we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is a sex drive. The second is romantic love, that craving, the elation, the possessiveness, the obsessive thinking of early stage intense romantic love. And the third brain system is attachment, that sense of calm and security you can feel for a long-term partner. And these three brain systems are associated with different chemical networks. They're often connected, but they have different chemical networks. For example, testosterone is really the hormone of sexual desire in both men and women. I and my colleagues have now put 49 people into a brain scanner who were madly in love, and we've found that the dopamine system is really central to the feeling of intense romantic love. And this third brain system of attachment, other scientists have found that that's associated with different chemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin. But it's interesting how these three chemical systems interact. For example, when you fall madly in love with somebody, suddenly everything about them becomes sexually attractive. 
And, you know, a week ago, before you fell in love with them, they were just another nice guy at school or at work or in the gym or whatever, but suddenly everything about them becomes sexually attractive. And I, it's in part because as the dopamine is going up in, with intense romantic love, it's triggering the testosterone system. And also, can the reverse be true? I mean, can you casually go to bed with somebody and then trigger the brain system for romantic love? Well, not always, but it can definitely happen because any kind of sexual stimulation does trigger the dopamine system and can trigger the feelings of romantic love. And as a matter of fact, with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, which can give you those feelings of deep attachment. This is one of the reasons I say that casual sex is never casual. Unless you're so drunk you can't remember it, it is not casual. Something happens because you can trigger these other brain systems for romantic love and attachment. So the brain is unable to distinguish between real romantic love and pseudo love that's a one night stand. Well, I think that a lot of people can. I mean, after I define what the sex drive is and what romantic love is, just about everybody's quite clear on it. I mean, the sex drive really is the urge for sexual gratification. And romantic love is that elation, the giddiness, the euphoria, the obsessive thinking about somebody, you know, the craving to be with them, the high, people, these people are highly motivated to win this individual and they really focus on them. You know, when you're madly in love with somebody, you can list what you don't like about them, but you sweep that aside and then focus on, on what you do like. So they're very distinctly different feelings, but they often go together, as I mentioned. They can trigger each other. And by the way, you know, I've got a graduate student, uh, Justin Garcia, who's studying hooking up, I mean, one night stands, and he asked these people, um, over 500 students at a university in the East, why did you start that hookup? And 50% of uh, women and 52% of men said, I wanted to trigger a longer relationship. And one-third of them actually succeeded in doing it. And it's because when you go to bed with somebody, you really can trigger the brain system for romantic love and attachment. So they didn't. Unco- they probably were unconscious of what they were doing by going and having fast sex with somebody, but they knew in their minds, their thinking minds, that they wanted to, this to help them move towards a longer relationship. And in fact, although they didn't know the biology of it, it succeeded. You mentioned you put a lot of these people in scanners. What does a brain in love look like? Do they process <laughs> um, Colleagues have put the 49 people who were madly in love into a scanner. The first 17 had just fallen in love. They were young, and they had, although you can fall in love at any age, but they were happened to be young, a college population, and in love an average of seven months. Our second group was 15 individuals who had just been rejected in love, so they were really in bad shape. And the third group were people in their 50s, who reported that they were still in love, not loving, just in love with their long-term spouse, an average of 21 years of marriage. So we found some things that were common to all three conditions, and one of those things was activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. And we found the activity in a region that actually makes dopamine, a natural stimulant, and sends dopamine to many brain regions. As a matter of fact, this is exactly the same brain region that became comes active when you feel the rush of cocaine. And that what that stimulant does, what the dopamine does, is it gives you that focus, you know, the belief that this is the only person on earth, that they're, they're, they're above humanity in, in their brilliance and their charm and their sex appeal and their sense of humor, etc. I mean, you really distort reality when you're madly in love, and it's in part the dopamine that's coursing through the mind that gives you that energy, the focus, the motivation, the craving, the obsessive thinking.
So what happens to those that, that become attracted? Are there certain types of features that people look for? I mean, you, you, you talk in, in your new book about different brain chemistries that go well together. You know, although I, for many years, I've been studying the brain circuitry of romantic love, that's what happens after you fall in love with somebody. But that doesn't answer the question of why do you choose this person rather than that person, which is what the people at Match.com and then the dating site that I set up with them, Chemistry.com, wanted to know. So I began to, well, I look very, very carefully in the biological literature, because I am a biological anthropologist, to see those chemical in the brain that are associated with personality traits. And then I figured what I would do is find those, for example, the dopamine system. If you tend to be expressive of the dopamine system, you tend to be novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, optimistic, quite flexible. If you're expressive of the serotonin system, you tend to be traditional, conventional, cautious, but not fearful, calm, social. I mean, this is why people take Prozac and Paxil driving up the serotonin. They're managerial. They tend to be loyal and conscientious. They, they like to follow the rules. They respect authority. Uh, the third type is the high testosterone type. These people are, and it can be women as well as men. I think Hillary Clinton's a good example. They tend to be analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, very good at things like math or engineering or computers or mechanics. They are ten, tend to be very self-contained, quite ambitious, like to debate. And the fourth type is the high estrogen type. I think Bill Clinton's actually a very good example of this. These people see the big picture. They are, tend to be imaginative, intuitive. They've got very good people skills. Everybody knows in, in the world knows Bill Clinton can't stop talking. They've got very people skills. They are compassionate, uh, emotionally expressive, etc. So... Basically, those are the four basic chemical systems in the brain that actually have personality traits connected to them. There's a lot of other chemical systems in the brain, but those, the, I mean, for example, the endorphins, okay, they're in the pain system, but they're not, not a, associated with personality traits. So basically what I did is I looked at these constellations of personality traits associated with these four basic chemical systems, dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen, and I created a questionnaire to see to what degree you express all four of these systems. And I call the high dopamine type the explorer, the high serotonin type, the builder, the high testosterone type, the director, and the high estrogen and oxytocin type, the uh, negotiator. So on the dating site, chemistry.com, I ask a lot of questions to see to what degree you express all of these chemical systems. I mean, we do express all of them. I mean, these are brain systems, not cubby holes. And then I watched who was drawn to whom. There's real patterns there. And, and so the question is, who is drawn to whom? Yeah, well, explorers go out with other explorers. They want somebody who's equally energetic, curious, creative, somebody who'll leap off the couch and go swimming after dark with them or go to the movies at midnight or try new things. So in that case, similarity attracts. Similarity also attracts in the serotonin system. Uh, the builder type, the, the traditional type, wants traditional. They want somebody else who's going to be conscientious, who's going to be patient and thorough, who's going to be calm, who's going to be social with them, can build their community. These are the pillars of society will follow the rules, etc. In those, both, both those cases, similarity attracts. But the other two cases, opposites attract. The high testosterone type uh, goes for the high estrogen, and the high estrogen goes for the high testosterone. And 
I think Hillary and Bill is a good example, she being the testosterone and he being the estrogen. But I think what they're doing from a Darwinian evolutionary perspective is really pooling very different resources to raise their young. And, for example, I think the the high testosterone type, they're not as good with people, they're not as verbal, verbally skilled, and I think they need the compassion, the social skills, the verbal skills, the empathy, uh, the flexibility of the negotiator. And I think the negotiator, these people can see a million different ways of doing things. I mean, they live in a world of it depends. Well, you know, where do you want to go for dinner? Well, it depends. I mean, we can go here, we can go there. And they sort of need the directness and the decisiveness and the tough-mindedness of the director. So in those two cases, opposites attract. It's hard to imagine two directors getting together. <laughs> That's a good point. You know what? I'm always fascinated with all the people that I meet, of course, and we get talking about this and there. There was a, a man who was a lawyer. Oh, boy, we, this guy ate rocks for breakfast. I mean, no kidding. I mean, he was all business, and he was tough-minded. And sure enough, he married somebody like himself. And he to me said, Helen, you know, it did not work. I mean, we competed over a game of cards. And nobody was socially skilled enough to resolve our problems, debated everything. We were both workaholics. Nobody was ever home. And he said and he finally did divorce, and he finally met a negotiator. And she's happy being at home. She's happy cooking the dinner. She's happy listening to him. She likes his directness and decisiveness. And, of course, she brings to the party um, compassion, empathy, and all these social skills that he really needs. So it's interesting how I see people all the time. I mean, I talk about these combinations. I mean, what happens when an explorer marries an explorer, which is the more natural pattern? What happens when an explorer marries a builder? What happens when a builder marries a director, et cetera, et cetera? So I, I must say, though, about this book, of, you know, I've written five books, but this book particularly has made me understand people so much more than probably all the four others put together. I mean, the four others really brought me along, but this one really has had an impact on me. You, you mentioned that this questionnaire you developed, people can take this online. What was the science in, behind actually developing the questions in, in there? There is a very particular way that you develop questionnaires. And well, what I did was I, for example, I knew that impulsivity was, is in the dopamine system. And there's a lot of academic articles on that. So I wrote the question, do you like to do things at the spur of the moment? And then you've got four choices, strongly disagree, disagree, agree, or unstrongly agree. And so over and over, it was a bottom-up approach. I took what I knew of genetics and the biology, the hormones, the neurotransmitters, and asked questions. For example, we know that there's a lot of data that cautiousness is in the serotonin system. So I just asked the question, are you more cautious than most people? And it's interesting that the fancier you make the question, the less likely you are to get the right response. So in other words, if you say, flat out ask them, are you more cautious than others or than other people? Or are you more traditional than most people? Or are you more creative than most people? These are the most effective kind of questions. So what was nice about chemistry.com is that I had a population of people taking this questionnaire. And so I would ask 14 questions to see to what degree you were the explorer, the high dopamine type, and 14 questions for each of the other basic brain systems. And I would get back 30,000 responses within a couple weeks. And I could look at those responses and see which questions worked and which ones didn't work. For example, here's a question that did not work. It's a question I asked, do you startle easily? Well, I know that the startle response is in the dopamine system. I mean, it's just in the literature. But 
Do you suppose anybody on a dating site is going to say they startle easily? No. 40,000 people lied to me. So I got to throw that question out and put in a question that people are willing to answer honestly. And so by taking questions out that don't work and putting questions in that do work over and over and over again, you finally get a questionnaire that it has a scientific reliability is what they call it. The Chromebex Alpha has to be above 70, and uh, all of ours hover around the 0.80. So it is now a scientifically accurate questionnaire. Now, the issue then becomes, you know, there's certain questions on there I really like to change because I can see the nuance of how it might mean different things to different people, but I can't change it anymore because it's now scientifically accurate. You know, all these systems, dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, estrogen, they're obviously found in other organisms as well. Right. What uh, evidence is there, at least in other organisms, for this type of matching in their, in their mating game? Oh, that's so interesting. You know, nobody's ever asked me that. This, this is wonderful. Well, first of all, I, in, in my book, Why We Love, and also in this new book, uh, Why Him, Why Her, I devote a whole chapter to other animals because we inherited these brain systems. I mean, there's no question about that. They all come out of nature. These are basic brain systems. And in fact, I tell various stories about, you know, people who have a cat or a dog, for example, they know that some one of their dogs is very cautious and one of them is exploring and sniffing around everything and one of them is quite dominating and, and one of them is a very agreeable dog. <laughs> Animals have personalities and my hypothesis is that these same personality types that mankind has inherited clearly come, in my opinion, from nature and that I've read a lot of, of the ethological literature describing everything from rhinoceroses to Drosophila flies, and I give some of those stories in the book Why Him, Why Her, showing that these personality types really do come out of nature. But you asked a different question of, you know, who are they drawn to? And what's important is to remember is that 97% of mammals do not form pair bonds. They have sex and and keep on going. <laughs> or they live in a community and they have sex with members who are in estrus and then they, but they do not form a pair bond. Only 3% of mammals actually form a pair bond to rear their young, and that's people. And we're among them, I mean. So there's, of course, no data on which other animals, there are other animals that form pair bonds. I mean, beavers do, foxes do, all of the wild dogs do, a little African antelope does, the dick dick. Uh, but I'll never get to, I'll probably be able to study them. But I do have a graduate student who is studying long-term marriages, and I just got some data back from him. He asked 215, I think, 213 married couples to take my questionnaire and to also talk about their marriage. And as it turns out, these people are all married, I think an average of 15 years or more. And sure enough, the high dopamine types, two explorers had built long-term stable marriages, two builders had built long-term stable marriages, and the male director and the female negotiator had built long-term stable marriages. So this is my first data in the marriage world. You know, I mean, on a dating site, you're studying first attraction. You're not studying long-term attachment. But this is the first data that, in fact, if you actually do marry the person who you're naturally most drawn to, you are more likely to stay married to that person. Hmm. 
So, so the the chemistry of these systems uh, not only responsible for the initial attraction, but also the long term success. It appears to be. Hmm. I, my actually, it didn't surprise me about the builder. I mean, they're very traditional people, and they're going to stick in a long term marriage no matter what. They want the respect of the community. They want to follow the rules, and so I'm not surprised that two builders or two ser- high serotonin types build a long marriage. I have often wondered about two dopamine types, though. I mean. I mean, these people like novelty. They like adventure. They, the new. And my thought is, well, maybe these are the types that will marry somebody, have a child, break up, and marry somebody else, and have a series of marriages, creating more genetic variety in their young. It's not a, that's an adaptive mechanism, but it's a little chaotic. So, but I, my hypothesis now is. I bet these were the types that could have gravitated to a builder when they were young, looking for stability. The builder could offer stability and community and family and loyalty. And then after a while, they may have gotten bored. And then when they finally found another explorer who was willing to do just as much of their craziness with them, then they fell into something for life. And I don't mean just jumping off mountains. I mean, you know, there's a lot of it. I, mean, I used to, many years, uh, he just died, but I went out with a man for many years, a wonderful man. And as he got older, he really didn't leave the house very often. But he read 10 hours a day. I mean, he was very much of the explorer. I mean, you don't have to be the kind of explorer that's driving fast cars. You can be an explorer of the mind. Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. Maybe as a final word, with Valentine's Day coming up, what's your advice for finding love? Never give up. Never give up. We've got a brain. We were born to love. This brain system can it, it can be triggered at any time, at any age. The youngest person I ever met uh, who was madly in love was two and a half, and the oldest was 78. But I imagine people in their 80s can be totally in love, too. When you're going out with somebody in the beginning, look for what's right about the relationship. Don't spend your time listing what's wrong with it. Look for what's right. And if he passes or she passes at all, go out on another date because the more you get to know somebody, the more you like them and the more you think they're like yourself. Well, it sounds like very good advice. Professor Fisher's uh, your new book, uh, Why Him, Why Her? And uh, we want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Helen Fisher discussing the science of love. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. When the sunshine beckons to you And your wings begin to unfold I thought you'd bring in the songs you sing Are gonna keep me from the cold And if a sword is hidden among you And its words may wound my soul you can't fill me up with what you got Cause my heart's been keeping on She is love And the ways are high and steep She is love And I believe her when she speaks Love And the ways are high and steep She is love And I believe I do believe her when she And the dreams of my delight Whatever stirs my mortal frame Will you keep it warm at night? I don't know where you come from I know I haven't got a clue All I know is I'm in love With someone who loves me too 
Rocketron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Rocketron 5000 has chosen the topic, what type are they? So for the following five individuals, the Rocketron 5000 would like to know uh, which of the uh, four types that you uh, described, where they fit into, and maybe a little reason why. Professor Fisher, you ready to play the game? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, what type is she, Oprah Winfrey? Oprah Winfrey. Don't forget we're a combination of all four of them, but she is, I think, dramatically the negotiator, the high estrogen type. I've read quite a bit about her, and she once said, the only time I made a bad business decision is when I did not use my intuition. That's spoken by a negotiator. She also cries relatively easy. She's emotionally expressive. She's got wonderful people skills, and she's got very good verbal skills. That's the negotiator. That certainly seems like it. Uh, Number two, former CEO of Microsoft, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is very much of the director. He's analytical, he's logical, he's direct, he's decisive, he's tough-minded, and he's very good at what scientists call rule-based systems, math, engineering, mechanics, computers, and look at him. I mean, he changed the world with his understanding. His spatial understanding changed the world for all of us with his understanding of computers. So the other thing about him is I once was in the room when he made a speech, and he was holding his hand up, and I was looking very hard. His fourth finger, his ring finger, is longer than his second finger, his pointing finger, and that's a very good indication of testosterone priming in the womb. So he's a director. Uh, All right, number three is the golfer Tiger Woods. I've been convinced for a long time that he is the builder type. Uh, What is golf but patience, calm, social, networking, These are all traits of the builder. Now, I know he's been off exploring a lot recently, and his secondary type might be the explorer. But it's interesting how when the chips were really down recently, he gave up golf for family. And I don't think that Elliot Spitzer in New York would have given up politics for family. And the fact that Tiger Woods did that is a real indication that he went beyond the road, but that he's a man who respects tradition and and wants to be respected, wants to follow the rules, and now that he's gotten so clobbered, he probably will. (laughs) All right. Uh, Number four is the first president of the United States, George Washington. George Washington is another builder. He is a perfect example of all of the finest of the builder traits. He really respected authority. You know, he... He joined the Army because he felt the duty to do that. He was a very social person. Anybody who walked by Mount Vernon at dusk was allowed to spend the night. He had all kinds of parties all the time. He was social. He was networking. He was calm. He was cautious. As a matter of fact, some of his generals would write about him saying how cautious he was in spite of the fact that he was tearing around trying to win this war. He actually had a very cautious streak. He was religious. And religiosity is, in, in large part, in the serotonin system. And, of course, he kept one, one wife for life. And finally, number five, it's uh, the First Lady, Michelle Obama. 
I think she's totally fascinating. I recently read a biography of her written by a journalist at the, I think, the Washington Post, trying to figure out Michelle Obama. She's got a lot of explorer in her, and, of course, so does her husband. I mean, she's daring. She believes in change. She's very much of a community organizer. You know, I would have to say that if she were to take my questionnaire, I think that she would probably measure quite evenly on all four of them and that's totally possible you can be high on some low on others you know any combination but i've often thought that she was first an explorer because of that daring because of the motivation and because of the energy because of the creativity and at first i thought maybe her secondary is the director she was very good at playing the piano as a child and i think that uh, that's a very spatial talent and that's the director but you know he calls her the boss, and I think she's got very strict concept of what family is, how family should proceed, what everybody's rules are, roles are, etc. and that's the builder. So she's probably a lot of all of them. I mean, she's an a interesting, complicated personality, but if I had to put my foot down, I'd say she's an explorer-builder. All right. Well, good news for the president. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Fisher, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and, of course, discussing your book, uh, Why Him, Why Her. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.